It's a real pleasure to be with you guys this evening. My name is Andrew, and um, I'm the pastor of the church, along with a few other guys who work alongside me, and I was part of the team that planted this church um, four years ago. The years just tick on, and I'm just so, so, so happy to be celebrating Jesus together as a church. And thank you for those of you who are, who are visiting. You're really welcome here. Um, if ever you want to come along any other time, you're, you're most welcome I want to talk to you um, about Jesus as the gift of light, the gift of light to us. And uh, I want us to think about this through the lens of, of uh, thinking about events in history and how they change the present. Uh, often in life, it's, it's somewhat futile to ask the question, what could have been, because you can't change the past. But also, you know, when you start to reflect on it, things that have happened in your life, uh, even tiny things, small decisions, can have an unbelievable, um, huge consequence and trajectory in your day-to-day life right up to the present. I think about, you know, I'm, I'm happily married to my wife, Sian. I've got two kids, a boy who's five and a daughter who's three. They'd be here um, tonight if they weren't going a little bit crazy uh, after the first service, <laughs> probably too many cookies or whatever, and, um, and uh, another kid on the way. And I think back to, I remember vividly when I first met my wife, and I, I, this was the, in the era before apps existed, so it required a certain amount of skill and courage, I like to think. <laughs> and um, I, I approached her, in, I, knew, I didn't know much about her, I knew she was, she was a Christian like myself, and um, I knew she was beautiful, that was all I knew really. And uh, I approached her and said hello, and you know, I just think how, if I'd just not done that, how different my life would be to this point. You think about things that have happened to you and where you are today. So much of it hangs on, almost on a thread in terms of the little decisions you make through life. And it's not just true of your own story. It's also true in history. Um, I don't know if you've ever studied uh, the First World War. It was a great, great tragedy. and There was close to 17 million men died in the First World War. They say about 10 million soldiers and 6 or 7 million Um, civilians died in the First World War. But the historians will tell you that you can trace it all back to one spark, a single event, which which caused Europe to erupt. And it was the assassination of the Archduke Franz Ferdinand, who was the heir apparent to the Austro-Hungarian throne. And uh, his assassination led to the invasion of the Kingdom of Serbia, and then the whole thing blew up. In fact, I was sharing this just, as I said, in the previous service, and a guy came up to me afterwards and said it was even more unlikely than that. In fact, the, the, the assassinators, in particular by a man called Princip, had missed their opportunity. But if it hadn't been for the fact that Franz Ferdinand's driver took a wrong turn, and they happened, the, the assassins happened to see him, he would never have been killed. The whole thing might not have begun, might not have been sparked. And you think, well, how can it be? that such monumental events can hang on such slender happenings in life. And it's just the way history works. Um, You also think, just a more positive example, about how in 1928, in September 1928, on the return from holiday, a man called Alexander Fleming returned to his laboratory as a scientist and was sorting through Petri dishes uh, that he'd been growing uh, Staphylococcus bacteria in. And he happened to notice in the corner of one of those Petri dishes was a little circle where the bacteria were not growing. 
And so he looked closer under the microscope, discovered there was a mold there secreting mold juice. Apparently, it's what mold does. You've got mold in your bedroom here in London. Get rid of it. There's mold juice coming out of the thing. And um, it's secreting mold juice. And it was, this mold was, was killing the bacteria. And thus, he discovered penicillin. And uh, you think about how all our lives would be different if it were not for penicillin. Most of, actually, many of us probably wouldn't even be here if it were not for that. You think, how is it that such great things hang on such single events? And it's through that that I want you to think about what happened at Christmas. Because here's the claim. A baby was born. A baby who was born after great anticipation and expectation. The first of the two passages we read, the passage from Isaiah, was written about 700 years before the arrival of Jesus. For unto us a child is born. It's kind of looking ahead and thinking, one day a baby will come. And the claim is that he is the most important event in history. The pivotal event in history, his arrival, his birth, and everything that he did and accomplished. And I know that for some of you, you may be skeptical of that claim. You may be cynical of it. And I want to, I want to therefore ask the question with you, what if Jesus had never been born? What if Jesus had never been born? I want to give you three answers to that question. Here's the first. <clears throat> if Jesus had never been born, there would be no Christmas. Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief at that <laughs> prospect. I, um, I, I happen to love Christmas. I do. I'm definitely a Christmas guy. I think it's wonderful. The lights, the food. I like the food. <laughs> you can tell. Um, I love everything about it. I think Jeremy and I, you can imagine us in the office just swigging the mulled wine. And <laughs> what was it you said? Between your lips. The sweet taste between your lips. I love everything about Christmas. I do. Um, but not everybody does. So perhaps you think, well, that's not a very good thing, you know, to, to make that claim about Jesus. Um, I know I was reading, a, there's a great Christian author called C.S. Lewis who uh, wrote a very short essay called What Christmas Means to Me. And he said, look, this Christmas is a couple of things. One is this religious festival. That's fantastic. He said the other thing is it's a commercial racket. And he was writing in 1957. It's got a lot worse since then, hasn't it? And he said, if it were my business to have a view on this, I should say that I much approve of merrymaking, but what I approve of much more is everybody minding his own business. And what he particularly was annoyed with was what he called the kind of, he said it's the modern rule that anyone can force you to give a present by sending you a quite unprovoked present of his own. It is almost blackmail, he said. <laughs> and I, I think that's quite fair, to be honest. But the reality is, of course, that mixed with the frustrations, the tiredness, the agony, the, uh, the exhaustion of Christmas, there's also the hope it brings, the light it brings. And it's really symbolic, actually, that it happens in the midst of winter. And then we switch on the lights and we start to celebrate hope. Because really that captures something about what the festival is, is trying to evoke, trying to communicate to you. And certainly, I don't know if you remember the story, um, it was on one of the John Lewis adver adverts a few years ago, but I'd heard of it before then and it was, it's a true story. That in the first Christmas of the First World War, when... Uh, it was becoming obvious that the war would not be over by Christmas, as everyone had expected. The soldiers of the German lines and the British and French lines, the Allied lines, were lined up in these trenches with no man's land between. And it was a stalemate that happened. And anyone popping their head above the trench would, would get it shot by a sniper. Anyone climbing over might get bombed, gas, any of those things. But on Christmas Day, the Germans... The Germans started probably very early in the morning, I'd imagine. Um, they started singing. They started singing, and they put it, 
they put trees out and they burned candles and they started celebrating uh, Christmas. And then the British responded by singing carols. And there's a bit of a, a rivalry going on. But eventually, what happened was these men put their head up and they crept into no man's land and they started to exchange photographs and gifts. And in a way, that, that captures something of what this season is about, that it's, it injects hope into the darkness, doesn't it? Even, even stopping something as atrocious and horrific as a war in that sense. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. If Jesus had never been born, there'd be no Christmas. But I want to go a bit deeper with you. If Jesus had never been born, here's my second answer. You would live in a very different world. It's hard to imagine, actually, just how different. Because it's almost immeasurable the impact that this man has made. It's kind of a cosmic impact. I always loved that moment in, uh, in the Back to the Future films. I'm hoping you guys have seen these. But you know when Marty McFly, he goes back into, into, the, into, the, into, into the past and goes and visits his own parents. And the story is that his dad uh, met his, his, his mom by, by being a peeping Tom. He'd been looking through the window at her with binoculars, um, climbing up a tree. And he'd fallen out the tree, landed on the road, been hit by a car. The mom had come out. She'd taken him in, nursed him to health, they fell in love, and the rest was history. In the Back to the Future films, uh, what happens is Marty, who's gone back, he's disturbing his own history, because he rescues his dad after he falls out of the tree, pushes him out of the road, he gets hit by the car, he's, he's then nursed to health by his own mom. His mom falls in love with her own son, and as a result, he begins to disappear, because if the parents don't get together, Marty is never born. And so you can start to, I mean, the mind-bending idea of time travel, isn't it? But what would happen if we could just remove Jesus from history? And really, we don't know. How different would this world be? We can't really even begin to speculate. But here's what we can do. We can step back into the world in which Jesus existed and ask, well, what change did he make to that world? I was uh, reading an article recently by a man called Tom Holland, who's a best-selling historian and author, wrote books like Rubicon and Persian Fire. And uh, Tom Holland, he's not a Christian, but he was reflecting in this article in the New Statesman about the impact of the Christian faith on the world. And he said, this was his story. He said early on in his life, he'd been brought up in a Christian home. And uh, in that experience, he, he became disillusioned with the Christian faith because he was fascinated with two things dinosaurs and empires. And first of all, the fascination with dinosaurs, he thought, well, you know, he had a book with a picture of Adam and Eve on the cover with the dinosaurs, and he began to become a little bit, a bit doubtful about the Christian claims. And then he became obsessed with empires and history. And the Bible's full of them. It, it talks about the Egyptians, it talks about the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians. And he said, I wasn't really interested in God and the Israelites. I liked all the bad guys. And he became obsessed with the Greek gods and the, and the Roman drama and all the kind of stuff that was going on in the ancient world. And, and he, he'd bought in fully to the idea that Christianity was a kind of aberration in history, a problem in history. Because if we hadn't had no, any Christianity, then we would have had the greatness of Rome and all of its influence still dominating. So certain historians have taken that view. A man called uh, Swinburne um, said in this kind of scoffing way, he said, thou hast conquered, O pale Galilean. Speaking, you know, with such, such hatred of the influence of Jesus. And that was more or less Tom Holland's view. 
But he said, a gnawing doubt began to emerge. He said, it's like an itch. You know when you have like an itch on your back where you just can't quite find it? You ever experienced that? And he said, I couldn't quite figure out why I was feeling uncomfortable with this idea. And he began to, he's described how what began to dawn on him was just how evil the world was into which Jesus was born. You had Caesar, who'd sorted a million Gauls, the northern French people, and then he'd enslaved a million more, and this was not something he was ashamed of, it was something which he was a badge of honor in Rome. He said the whole economy was built on slavery, and that's true, something like a third of the population in the time of the Roman Empire were slaves. A third, imagine that. And he said the entire sexual economy revolved on the principle that a Roman man could have sex with whoever he wanted, any time he wanted. And he said what he began to realize, to his great discomfort, was that actually, and this is his words, in almost every way, I am a Christian. Because when he opened the pages of the New Testament, read the Gospels and read Paul's letters, it was there that he found the foundations of what has built the modern world, ideas like the dignity of human life, the love of God for individuals. And so out of that comes the rule of law, comes human rights, comes ideas like equality. None of this existed prior to the influence of Christianity. You think, well, what would our world be like if you took those things away? It's really provocative to think about that. We can get a bit of an idea from the writings of other people. There was a man called Bertrand Russell in the last century, a mathematician, philosopher, um, logical, logical man, ruthlessly logical. And uh, he, he'd bought wholly into um, the idea that the scientific worldview is the only worldview that we should hold to. And then he describes some of the consequences of the worldview he holds. He said things like this. He said, everything's an accident. Everything around you is accidental. He said, there's nothing beyond death. It's kind of like, a, well, wake up and just... just Recognize that fact. He says, and these are his words, he says, everything is destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system and the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Everything will, in other words, come to an end at some point when the universe dies a death. And then he concludes, only within the scaffolding of these truths only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. Happy Christmas, everybody. <laughs> and, you know, it's not just Bertrand Russell writing the last century. I've recently read um, some of Yuval Harari's works, like Sapiens and Homodias. And he's also articulating an atheistic worldview. And he, you know, he says, he's very honest. He says at various points, he says, um, if we take faith out of the picture, there is no such thing as human rights. There is no such thing as equality. These are fantasies because we are all products of chance and of, of natural consequences. Friends, what I want you to do, I, I know this is heavy stuff, but I want you to understand, of course, that we read just a passage that went like this. It said, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. I don't think you can appreciate Jesus and the hope that he is until you can begin to feel darkness and what despair in a godless universe does to the soul. And Jesus has changed our world beyond recognition 
if we are also then seeking to now erase Jesus from history, what are we then turning to is a question that all of us should wrestle with. So what if Jesus had never been born? There'd be no Christmas. You'd live in a very different world. Here's my last point. You would not know how much God loves you. Starting with the problem. Isaiah says the problem was darkness. The Bible says that this is the human problem, and it has a couple of aspects to it. You know, in, in, in the Bible, darkness means two things, and it's just like, as we use the word in English. It can mean, on the one hand, it speaks of moral evil, darkness around us, darkness in us. On the other hand, it speaks about a lack of knowledge, ignorance, being in the dark, and particularly to be, to be in the dark might be that you, are not, you don't know God, that you are distant from him, or you just have no idea who God is. Now, the question is, well, what difference does Jesus make to the darkness? What Isaiah tells us is that he's the light who came into the world. And the answer is, the answer is that Jesus was the first Christmas present. There's a verse in the Bible that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. A lot of you are going to be giving as an expression of love this Christmas. It says, God so loved the world and even us in our darkness that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the gift has a particular character to it. It says that this, this man, this person, is in himself the gift of light. It says, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, deep darkness, on them has light shone. There's a moment in the, the trilogy of the Lord of the Rings when the fellowship, part of the fellowship of the ring, these companions, find themselves in the forest where Galadriel, the queen of the elves, lives. And as they are hosted by them, eventually they part ways, and Galadriel gives gifts to the elves. And she gives to Frodo a gift of a file, a piece of glass, in which, she said, is the light of Erandil, the light of a star. Now later in the story, I mean, Frodo kind of forgets that he's got this thing, because it's not much use to him in normal day-to-day life. Later in the story, as he's Pursuing his quest to arrive in Mordor where he can destroy the ring. There's one way into Mordor that he can do, manage more or less safely. And it's through a long dark tunnel through the mountains. Where a giant man and orc eating spider lives called Shelob. And in the darkness, Tolkien uses this really evocative descriptions of the darkness. He says things like this. Here the air was still stagnant, heavy, and sound fell dead. And he said the darkness brought blindness not, blindness, not only to the eyes, but to the mind. And in a way, listen, this is the claim. The world is a dark place. I think all of us experience something of the heaviness of darkness that can feel like not just blindness to the eyes, but blindness and heaviness in the mind. In a sense, Jesus is the gift of light, like Frodo received in the dark, where he had to confront that spider, the embodiment of evil. And he asked the question, well, what does Jesus do for us 
as the gift of light. And really, he dispels the kinds of darkness that I've been describing. On the one hand, he deals with the evil that's in our hearts. And he asks, well, isn't that offensive? Isn't that judgmental to speak of such a thing? But I actually don't think it is. I think it's, it's merely honest. Because if you, if you are truly honest with yourself, all of us know that in our conscience, in our heart of hearts, we know that there is this stuff in us that we are ashamed of, that we hide. There's reality to our, our life, our thought patterns, our attitudes, all kinds of things, which really can be described as evil. And that it's not judgmental to say that. It's rather like saying that a doctor who gives you an accurate diagnosis is judgmental. That's not judgment. It's, it's, it's a statement of truth. But here's a surprising thing. Jesus didn't come into the, into the world to deal with it by just by being a judge. Or by laying on us a law, a new set of instructions to dig our way out of this darkness. What the Bible says instead is that Jesus came into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for the wrong that we've done. And so if you can think of, think of events in the year as a mountain range, Christmas is like a mountain, but behind it looming much larger is the mountain of Easter. And so it was in Christ's life. The baby was born, but he was born in order that he would die on the cross. And so he would be the light who would dispel the darkness in our own hearts, the darkness of evil. But not just that. He also came to bring the light into our ignorance. And what I mean by that is that within us all are certain desires, certain longings, certain needs that really can only be understood as a spiritual quest. It was um, the St. Augustine who he grew up a really debauched and sensuous life and he found that it was like drinking salt water. He found that it didn't matter how much fun he had in life. He never really felt satisfied until he experienced the love of God. And reflecting much later on that in his kind of autobiography, which is called Confessions, which is kind of aptly named, he said about God, he said to God, he said, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. The problem that the world has is that in the darkness, we, we don't necessarily know who God is. And we don't know how to find him. We don't know how to know him. We don't know how to know his love for us, so that our spiritual longing is satisfied. But then came, then came a baby. Then came this light who kind of stepped into the world. And it says of him in the passage we read that he is, his name is Mighty God, Everlasting Father. In other words, in himself, he carried the full expanse and stretch and reality of divinity. He was God in human flesh. There's a verse towards the end of the Bible that describes it like this. He said, God who said, let light shine out of darkness. In other words, the God who made the world has shone in our hearts. We've been singing those words. Has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. What it means is this. that 
If you're in darkness and ignorance, not knowing who God is or how you can have a relationship with him, you only need to look at Jesus, understand that he is God given to us, revealed to us, to now have the light of knowledge and to understand him for the first time. And what you find in Jesus is one who is compassionate, who is loving, who changed lives all around him by his teaching and by his actions and by his compassion. The thing about Jesus as a gift, though, you think about this, it's true and it's going to be true. I, I predict this will be true for you in a few days' time. Whenever you receive gifts, there are certain gifts you don't necessarily want, right? Um, my, it's a wonder that me and my brothers exist because just to give you an idea of how romantically inept my father was, he once gave my mom the gift of an iron. Thing. <laughs> and yet, and yet, we're here. I can't quite understand how that happened. Tim Keller um, puts it like this. He said, he said uh, imagine on Christmas Day you receive gifts from friends and family, and one of them is, is, a, is, a, is a book on how to lose weight. And another is a book entitled Overcoming Selfishness. <laughs> now, what do you do? If you say, thank you so much, at that point you are acknowledging that you are both fat and obnoxious. <laughs> and there's truth to that, isn't there? In order to receive a gift, there's a sense in which you have to acknowledge the truth behind it. And this is the challenge of Jesus. The Bible never shies away from describing that this is a challenge for every person who, who confronts him or is confronted by him. Here's how it's put at the beginning of one of the Gospels. It says, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. So This is Jesus' arrival on planet Earth. He says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him. So he is God in human flesh. Yet the world did not know him. It says he came to his own. In other words, he came to the Jewish people, who of all people should know God when he's there among them. And it says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And this is the great challenge. God's given us the gift of Jesus. He's given us the gift of light. But not everybody will want to say thank you for that gift. Because to do so must involve the acknowledgement, the admission of the problem of darkness. Or else, why would you want the light? He goes on and says this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. God means us good in giving us Jesus, because he means to mend the problem. He means to fix us. He means to bring us into a place where we can know him for ourselves and have a personal relationship with the living God. Friend, I hope that in the coming of the Christmas season, you will not regard this lightly or just as a merely sentimental occasion. But you will see not, not just the world-transforming effect of the birth of that one man who, beyond dispute, has had a bigger effect on history than almost or probably anyone who ever lived, but also the potential of his life-changing impact for you.